Welcome to episode 77 of the Retrospectors podcast, Mailbag 3. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Turlings. James, it's the most wonderful time of the year. How, how are you doing this Christmas? We, we were going to record last night on Christmas Day, but I ended up being a bit too tired to do it. So here we are on Boxing Day recording our episode. It is the most wonderful time of the year, the day after Christmas, the <laughs> furthest point from Christmas uh, that one can get. I- I'm not that much of a Grinch, but it isn't my favorite time of the year. Um, it's very busy, very chaotic, but, um, you know, it wasn't too bad this time around. We got some rain, which is always nice in Australia. It's always stinking hot about uh, about this late into December going into January. Um, so, you know, weather was good, food was good, um, got to see my family, you know, usual stuff. Yeah, I basically agree with you i find christmas day itself to be pretty much a a chore to be endured even though there are highlights but uh now we're in boxing day now i get to actually play all the video games i got as presents in fact as we were (laughs) just uh setting up my sister bought me a bunch of games on my steam wish list so i'm eager to get stuck into those uh but before we do we've got something very important to do and that's our mailbag episode so for those who haven't listened to one of these before every single year i guess for the past two years i guess it's now a tradition uh james and i have a mailbag episode where we take questions from our discord listeners and we answer their questions regardless of what they are and it seems like the questions this year have struck a slightly more serious tone than the ones last year (laughs) but uh so many fantastic questions i'm actually really excited to answer a lot of these um particularly the one about dark souls so uh strap yourself in we've got lots of good questions to go through um i won't do my usual introductory spiel i think if you're listening you know what we're all about so we hope you enjoy listening to us answer these questions over the next few hours yeah and thank you to everyone who submitted questions uh really appreciate that uh we should be uh pushing for time this time around thanks to the the large quantity this year it should be a fun editing job hey james yeah. <laughs> okay well um without further ado let's crack on into it and we're just going to be going from the top of the mailbag down to the bottom um i have slightly abbreviated uh some questions just to get to the heart of what you guys were trying to ask but if not just let me know so we'll start with mayday Mima. What's been your biggest surprise of the podcast when it comes to your opinion on a game? Not just games you expected to love that you hated, or expected to hate that you loved, but stuff you might have learned about yourself or game design that you didn't expect from games that you've played this year. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, the the obvious one for me is learning about how much I enjoyed the tank controls in Resident Evil 1. Uh, I did not expect um, something feeling that clunky to feel so good and so well placed in a game uh i think uh you know that game taught both of us like a lot about how you know mechanics can't really be evaluated in a vacuum i'd say and that game is like the perfect example of that um in terms of games that i was surprised at i was surprised how little i enjoyed the story in fallout 1 um i thought it would have a much bigger focus on story where in my experience there was actually barely any Uh, right up until the end where you got a heap of info dump. Um, And I was really surprised at how well the animations in Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines held up um, and how 
you know, that style of facial animation hasn't really continued in Western games. I agree on those, except the story in Fallout 1. I mean, I can understand why you didn't enjoy the story in Fallout 1, but I personally very much liked its grim and understated tone. It didn't have much personality or it didn't feel very full of vim and vigor like something like vampire but for me that just suited a post-apocalyptic ravaged wasteland so i vibed with uh with the atmosphere and storytelling in fallout one i guess i make a distinction between tone and story like i agree with you about the, the atmosphere matching the setting very well um I just mean, like, in terms of there was very little to do in terms of, like, questing and talking to NPCs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after we did Fallout 2 with Chris, I did end up coming to the conclusion that I enjoyed Fallout 2's story more. But I, as I said on that show, I think that they're best understood in... Together, yeah. Yeah, best understood together, because we get to see the evolution of a society that's barely surviving on the brink mm. of an apocalypse and also one that's you know been functioning for 80 years and has evolved to a point where society can flourish again um so i guess my answer to this question is a bit more uh conceptual a bit uh bigger picture and it's i honed in on the part of the question that says what have i learned about myself and i think for me the biggest revelation i've had this this year is the difference between someone with a history in pc gaming and the difference between someone with a history in console gaming now pre-1990s this is, distinction was far smaller um and after listening to some other retro gaming podcasts where people were playing on their commodore 64s and ataris it seems like there was they were virtually considered the same you played games and you played games but for the retro era that we're looking at, it seems like some people's gaming histories are far more influenced by the Super Nintendo era and the early uh, Nintendo 64 and PlayStation 1 era than I am. And I think that it's very interesting that when I think of video games, I think of primarily PC gaming titles, you know, RTS games, uh, the classic FPS games. Um, immersive sims things like that whereas for other people when they think of classic video games they go to games like mario and zelda and metroid and um it, it was just like a very interesting revelation i had because the way i conceive of video games and the things i value in video games is just the complete opposite to a lot of people yeah, uh, I, I would like when you said that, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because when I think of video games, the first thing in my mind goes to is like 3D platformers with a controller mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, stuff like Mario and Zelda as well. Stuff like RTS barely pops into my mind when I think of that. Yeah, and it's not it's not like I think Mario or Zelda are bad games. Like, we did Super yeah. Mario World, and I thought it was good. It just doesn't resonate with me in the same way as Doom. Like, I would put Doom above all of those games. Like, Doom, to me, is a better video game than Zelda or Mario or Metroid. And to me, that's obvious. To me, to me that's... It's like, obviously, that game is better than those games. But for some people, I mean, for, for a lot of people that's crazy talk and mario and zelda for them is how they define the greatest video games of all time yeah because like to me doom is like an enjoyable game you know at most yeah <laughs> i like i don't i don't love that game um whereas like i love the i like i love ocarina of time and i love mario 64 like all 
it's basically comes down to what we grew up with, right? Mm. Like you grew up playing Doom on your father's lap and I grew up um, getting an N64 for Christmas and playing the shit out of that. So, you know, very got to be very, you know, when you do reviews, got to be very open about that kind of thing, I think, because I think a lot of people, more important than games quality is how evocative it is of games you're familiar with. <laughs> I think that's a really big indicator of how much people will enjoy a game yeah absolutely and i I, and that's one of the reasons the show is interesting i think the fact that you and i bring our different historical perspectives to it yeah but yeah Yeah. it just uh really really came clear to me um just how much it mattered Alrighty, so the next question, um, and this is one from mate amy mer again the second question it is What's the most negative you've been on a game you ultimately decided did stand the test of time? And what game were you the most positive on that you decided didn't stand the test of time? So we'll answer the question about the most negative I've been about a game that I decided stood the test of time. Uh, So I went looking through all the games that we've played that I recommended but had a lot of problems with. And I think the one that stands out the most is probably Earthworm Jim. Uh, Earthworm Jim, I feel, is completely carried by its aesthetics and animation and sense of humor and sense of style. And I think that as a video game, it's not actually very fun to play. But it was just tolerable enough that it edged over into um, standing the test of time. I think that if the art style was just slightly worse or the gameplay slightly more miserable, um, I wouldn't have recommended it. So for me, it was Earthworm Jim. Yeah, and for me, it's very easily pathologic. Um, I love the story um, and the world of pathologic. Of the games I played last year, it's definitely the one that had the biggest impact on me. Um, But like Patrick, I kind of despised the gameplay um, like quite strongly. It was very boring, very tedious, very repetitive, very time consuming. Um, But ultimately, like I just value everything else the game is doing so much that I'm willing to overlook something even that extreme. So uh, (laughs) that's definitely the game um, for me. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, close second, same reasons. Yeah, I think it was particularly interesting because we'd just come, you know, fairly recently, we'd covered Resident Evil, which is another survival horror game who has gameplay mechanics that are pretty close to perfect, like uh, in terms of how it's, uh, and it's similar, it's survival horror mechanics where you're restrained on resources and everything. And Pathologic just does everything opposite to it. And it's, it's not good because of it. Um, I'll follow on from this, James, by saying that the game I was most positive about that I decided didn't stand the test of time was Pathologic. Pathologic, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought you'd say yeah, that. <laughs> so, so you and I, I feel like if if recommending is like the razor-thin middle, you and I were just slightly on either side at the end of the day. So I think our opinions were extremely close. It's just that the negative gameplay impacted me more. Because I agree with you, I loved absolutely adored the story and world building of that game to pieces it was just the gameplay was just a bit too much for me yeah and you're the kind of person that won't push through gameplay for story right generally not i i I would say that it, it just depends like a game like fallout 2 is the kind of game where i pushed through mediocre gameplay for the story and world and where i was i found it tolerable i found it a bit more engaging and interesting but pathologic is a 
particularly bad case of the gameplay experience <laughs> being terrible yeah, yeah they're like one of the worst gameplay experiences of my life so at the end of the day even though the story is one of the best stories in video games i just still don't think it's worth experiencing by playing the game in terms of most positive on a game that i didn't think stood the test of time so it's kind of a toss-up on one hand it's probably aquinox because i'm heavily biased towards that game but that's kind of a cheating answer because i agree um you, you yes. are very negative on the episode yeah but like inside i love the game <laughs> so right but the real answer is probably jet set radio like mm -hmm. i love the game's visual presentation and the music uh i think aesthetically i love basically everything about the game um in concept i love the gameplay and like what it's trying to do um but you know we were still pretty negative on that one but i felt that out of the games that i said no to that one was the one that like i most wanted to like but just didn't yeah jet set radio is a really good answer and i i kind of feel in the same camp as you like obviously you were although we both praised the aesthetics you were even higher on it than i was but uh yeah we both agreed that the gameplay was just a bit sloppy and un unenjoyable at the end of the day so yeah it's a pity but you know there's a sequel maybe the sequel fixes things <laughs> <laughs> all right so next question um, this is from user Amethyst. Thank you for the question. Um, which game generation do you think has held up the best and why? So for me, I think people usually think of game generations in terms of console generations, uh, yes. which doesn't really uh, apply to me in terms of like how I think of game generations, I guess, because I mainly play a PC and PC games pay no respect to whatever the dirty console users are doing so i just kind of nominated a time period which is pc gaming from 1996 to 2003 so the reason i've nominated this time period is that 1996 kind of saw the advent of um of 3d gaming in a pc space uh with quake um, and I think that it was a it was a real for, like I've got a nostalgia attachment. I've got a nostalgic attachment to this period as well. But when I think of like all of the fantastic RTS games, all the fantastic FPS games, uh, you started to see the advent of um, more immersive sims, um, some of the best stealth games. This is the period of PC games that when I think, where are all the classics? It's this period. And the reason I picked 2003 as the cutoff is that 2003 was when the Xbox was released. And I think that the, the release of the Xbox started to see a change in game development for, for all platforms at the same time. Prior to this, you would have games designed for PC and games designed from console. After the Xbox and Halo was released developers started to develop for consoles and PCs at the same time. And to me, that came at the cost of PC gaming. Consoles were far, far less powerful than PCs in this era, but consoles were what most people were playing. So developers started to develop for console power level and pc games started to suffer yeah and it's also kind of a ui and controls kind of thing mm -hmm. because people were trying to make control schemes that worked for both but neither was kind of you know perfect for each console i think that this thing that you're mentioning 
definitely happened. Uh, to me, it's interesting because I think this was like a learning period for developers. Like, I think when we're coming up now, more recently, people have figured out how to do this uh, more gracefully um, without it coming at such a cost to either side of the equation. But there was definitely a huge rough patch during the mid-2000s, even to the late 2010s, where uh, this was a huge problem. Um, like the UI in Skyrim, for example, awful because of consoles. I mean, the UI in Oblivion even was was awful yeah. because of consoles. I mean, if you look at the UI of Morrowind, it's 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 pretty ugly. However, the click and drag system, like you open up your infantry and you have a big box and you click and drag items in and away from it, like that's designed for PCs. It's designed for mouse and keyboard. And it's a million times more functional than the UIs in Oblivion or Skyrim. Um, the other game that comes to mind is Deus Ex Invisible War. Deus Ex, one of my favorite games of all time, expansive world, fantastic immersive sim. Deus Ex Invisible War, however, instead of just being a PC release, was designed for consoles. And so all of the gameplay mechanics were stripped back. The world and level design was stripped back. And it's one of the greatest disappointments of a game I've ever experienced. I, I just think that yeah, this this time period after two, 2003 really saw a fall off for PC gaming and it's basically console gaming's fault. So if ever I'm salty about console gaming, it's because of the period of PC gaming between about 2005-2010. It was a very sad time. Yeah, so for me, the answer to this question... I feel like the cheat answer to this one is the current generation. It's definitely held the best. Um, yes, James, that but... is a cheat. Come on, mate. <laughs> um, but the real answer for me, I guess, is somewhere around the PS1, PS2 generation. I think that a lot of the games from then have held up quite well. Although, it's interesting, early 3D graphics in general have not held up super well. Um, but I think that... A lot of games from back then were carried by strong design that like lasted through, even if though you know visually they're not that great. You know, like Resident Evil, Metal Gear Solid One, like uh, Ocarina of Time, uh, um, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I'd say around there is where I would put mine. But I think that. It's kind of like generation wise, I think that it's a, every generation is a mixed bag, basically. So my real answer, the real way I feel is like all of them in their own way. Oh, come on. Yeah, but I just I don't I genuinely only think that maybe SNES and Aram before has held up poorly. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I think we have a big jump in longevity, to be honest, uh, with maybe, you know, a dip at the start of the ps3 generation mm -hmm. okay so so thanks for the question uh amethyst also has a bonus question which is why you know zelda so james why, why haven't we played a zelda game what's up with that well but because patrick hasn't picked one yet <laughs> the funniest part about this question is when i answered the question in discord saying that james wouldn't let me pick me one and everyone just took that statement on face value yeah, it's just like, I was like, I'll just let them, I'll let this go, and someone will notice how ridiculous this is. Nobody did, so uh, thank you, Patrick, for making me look like uh, I hate the series. But no, the real answer is length. Like, we only play a few long games each year, they're generally quite lengthy, 
And because I've already played a lot of them, like whenever I'm trying to pick a long game to dedicate four weeks to, I don't. I generally don't want to pick a game I've already done. But like for the purposes of the show, I do want to do one. And I, the question is always like, which one do we do first? To me, for the show, the most interesting one to do is the first one, um, because I think the kind of game it is, the kind of game that requires you to. You know, it came out in a period where the internet wasn't everywhere, everyone wasn't tuned in all the time. You know, nowadays when a game comes out, there's a walkthrough for it posted instantly. Um, back then, you got through Zelda 1 with water cooler conversations or going to school and chatting with your friends and slowly piecing together information. Mm -hmm. And that kind of experience, I think, doesn't exist now, basically. So I think that on that axis it's not going to stand the test of time but from you know the purposes of talking about it i really want to do it um but i actually like don't want to play the game like myself personally i don't think i would enjoy it but i want to do it for the show so I, i'll try and do a zelda game this coming year um how about that yeah and for me the reason i've never picked a zelda game is like i said it it's never really been something... I've never really loved Zelda games in the way that most people seem to. Um, it's just never really clicked for me. I've started playing Ocarina of Time and Link to the Past, like played them both for several hours each, and I kind of bounced off both. Like they didn't really hold hold my interest in the way I expected with how high everyone was on them. Um, I don't have anything against Zelda. If there's one pick for the show, I'd be keen to try and talk about it. I just don't think I've got the attachment to this series that um that most people seem to. So I'll just wait for James to pick it. Yeah, that's probably a safe bet. I always wait for Pat to pick the next FPS. <laughs> no, I don't need to. <laughs> um, okay, so next question. Um, so this is from Mopey Bloke. Is it okay that I always imagine Pat and James as the two dudes from Off the Shelf Reviews? Uh, and my, my answer to that is, God, I wish my beard was that good. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure that's a question we need to answer, James. Isn't that just a uh, a moment of reflection? As, as long as long as they have magnificent beards, I guess that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah, and highly critical of things. <laughs> um, um, so for an actual question, um, and this is one that Patrick is excited about, mm. and I'm more ambivalent about. Uh, why exactly? Is Dark Souls 2 so bad in your opinion? Um, and this is where I go get a drink while Pat talks for 30 minutes. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to not talk for 30 minutes, but this is uh, the kind of question I could spend an episode talking about, and I'm not even joking. I could talk for this for hours, but I've tried to constrain myself and tried to limit it to two areas. So I think that the first thing that's bad about Dark Souls 2, the most obvious thing that's bad about Dark Souls 2 is its uh, macro level world design. So Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 3, Bloodborne and Sekiro, literally every other From Software games have some of the best world design in video games, period. They are large places that have a real sense of place that all connect to one another logically and form part of a larger world. And you can feel that as you move through the world. Um, and every time you transition from one area to another, it's very natural. Dark Souls 2 is not like this. Dark Souls 2 is an incoherent mess when it comes to its macro level design. Whereas in a game like Dark Souls 1, it feels like they've taken a location and it's kind of decayed naturally and those decayed areas form environmental barriers to your progress 
Dark Souls 2 feels like they've taken each individual area, given it to a different designer, and then once they've got 25 different levels, they had to figure out how to slap them together in a way that makes sense. And in many ways, they completely failed, the most famous of which is when you move from Earthen Peak to the Iron Keep, which is just completely nonsensical with no rhyme or reason but it's a problem that permeates the the entire world it has ramifications from a design level perspective as well uh dark souls 2 was the first game where you got to where you got the teleport ability immediately you could warp between bonfires without you know getting through half the game at all and i feel like this fed into the into the laziness of the people who designed this game they didn't feel the need to make the level design coherent and connected um, and enjoyable to move through because you could just warp from bonfires. So you spend the entire game, once you've been through an area, you just use a bonfire and you warp to another one and you literally never return to it again. All that said, I think that some of the micro-level design, like the dungeons of Dark Souls 2, uh, can be fine. Uh, Dranglag Castle and the Prison, and um, the two two of the three DLCs, the Iron King and Sunken King DLCs, have some fantastic uh, traditional looping helix Dark Souls level design. But there are some bad levels, and the macro level design is bloody atrocious. James, just I'll, I'll continue in a second, but did you feel this way with the level design? I know you've played some amount of Dark Souls too, even if you haven't finished it. Yeah, I've gotten like a third, maybe halfway through um, the game a couple times now, and I never stop because I feel like I hate the game. I just, it doesn't grip me in the same way that the first game does for, I don't know what reason. Um, to Like, I also noticed that this macro level design is a lot worse, like you mentioned, Although, to be honest, more important to me than that is, like, the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. I guess I don't like fighting the enemies as much as the enemies in Dark Souls 1. There's lots of very chaotic fights um, with large groups of enemies, rather than, like, you learning to fight specific single enemies. Um, I think that puts me off a little bit. I do like the sheer amount of weapon variety in the game. Um, although I guess my biggest issue is maybe the tone of the game. They go for something different to Dark Souls 1 um, and Demon Souls, but it doesn't really do anything for me. It's kind of like, it's trying to be like somber, but not like dark everywhere, I guess. I, it just, Melancholic I don't really or something? Get it. Yeah. yeah, something like that. I don't feel like they pull it off as well as they want to. I guess when I play Dark Souls 1, what I really like is this feeling of mastery over the game. Like, I can go a bunch of different ways if I want to. Like, I know what's where. Because of the... I guess this is the macro level design. Because everything's in a very, like, linear branching path, I feel like I can't do all these kinds of things like I can in the first game. But, you know, I don't know. I don't hate the game. Um, I've just never finished it, just like I've never finished Dark Souls 3 for the same reason, probably. I just get bored. Yeah, I was going to say that, like you brought up, even, like, the level design and world design is obviously very important to me with these From Software games, but I think the most important thing is the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. And the fact of the matter is, is that the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay of Dark Souls 2 is not very fun. Um, it's sluggish in a lot of ways. They Adaptability being a stat affecting your iframes on your roll means that 
you have very, very little window to actually dodge attacks correctly. And the enemies have far greater tracking as well. So it feels like if you aren't crazy precise with your roll timing that you're going to get punished. I think that the game is just slower. Um, you move slower and so do your enemies. And there's kind of like uh, the backswings on a lot of your attacks just kind of linger in annoying ways. It all adds up to it being the game feeling like a slog. Like in Dark Souls, even in Dark Souls 1, once you develop a sense of mastery, like James said, you can kind of just sail through the game. Like what was once a difficult uh, endurance test to overcome is one that you can now kind of roll and smash your way through with ease. Dark Souls 2, until you're like exceptionally good at the game, just never reaches that level. You just have to go through the slog and... When I play, I get a bow and arrow and I just kind of need to... I feel like I need to lure over enemies one by one or I just get overwhelmed and then i got to do it all over again. Well, I kind of like that. Like, I kind of like this tactical approach you need to take in some encounters where you do need to split enemies up. That's interesting to me. I guess... Um, I, guess it's... I guess what you're getting at is that a lot of your player power... You know, more of your player power in Dark Souls 2 was locked behind stat progression than it was in 1. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you don't really care for the RPG systems as much as other players do. Um, we noticed that when we reviewed the game. Um, like, uh, for me, I guess, I feel like a lot of your player power is really spread out amongst the different stats, so it's really hard to ever feel like your character is strong. Um, I, I always feel like there's, like, these taxes I need to pay when I'm leveling up my character. Mm -hmm. I'm not, like, excited to dump points into strength or, you know, HP or endurance. I feel like I have to level up adaptability in this other stat and this other stat and this other stat before I can you know, start doing the fun things. Yeah, you need you need 20 points in adaptability, and honestly, you probably want more than that just because, like, being able to dodge is the most important skill in the game, and it's impossible to do it. I mean, the boss fights are pretty bad. Like, there are some good ones in there, particularly in the DLC, but it, most of them yeah. are very easy and unsatisfying. The first time I played through Dark Souls 2, it's funny, I was really annoyed that like 90% of the bosses are humanoid. I was like, that's so boring, like Dark Souls 1 has all these cool big monsters. Um, and like nowadays, I always feel that human-sized boss fights are usually better than the huge big ones, so it's interesting that I felt that way back then. I think the problem is a lot of those human-sized boss fights are just not very fun. Like, it's not, it's not that I am intrinsically opposed to guy and armor fights. And in fact, uh, both, uh, is it Fume Knight and Sir Alon are guy and armor fights, which are, I would put, you know, in the top 20 ac across the entire series. Like, it does have some yeah. good boss fights. But there are too many of them, and they're too easy and kind of boring and repetitive. And, and kind of samey, right? Yeah, because it's the problem. Because yeah. they're not like... They're not human-sized like you are. They're like giant. Hum they're like giants. Like they're humanoid, but they're big, so mm. they have all the problems of the big bosses, but none of the benefits of being humanoid. Um, and like, you know, after I played Bloodborne, it's clear that you can make huge bosses that are really fun to fight. Like Ludwig's a great example mm. of that. Um, you can also make great, very small human-sized enemies. Um, the DLC again, full of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, back then when I first played it on release, my number one criticism was that the bosses seemed boring to me. So I, I will say like for all my complaining, 
I don't think Dark Souls 2 is an atrocious game. It's the kind of game I'd give like a 6 out of 10. And I think it actually did some things extremely well. Uh, it's Some of the aesthetics in Dark Souls 2 are beautiful, but you know, then other parts are but ugly. I think that uh, from a PvP and balance point of view, it's better than Dark Souls 3 and probably Bloodborne, although I didn't play much of the, of the Bloodborne PvP. I think it has the best and most interesting New Game Plus. They've actually got significant changes when you move into New Game Plus. And one of my favorite little changes is Bonfire Aesthetics, where you can turn specific areas into the New Game Plus equivalent to get the New Game Plus loot from that area, which is, which is just a really cool idea that I'm disappointed they haven't uh, continued to do. I just get irritated by Dark Souls 2 apologists saying, yeah, everyone who's criticizing Dark Souls 2 is just being a meanie and is just whinging because it's too hard. No, Dark Souls 2 is the is the worst game of the From Software games by a significant margin. And this is coming from someone who's played through it twice. So obviously, <laughs> obviously I don't I don't loathe it in the, in the same way I loathe other games. I just want to be honest and upfront about why it, it is. It's a significant drop-off from all the other games. So our next question comes from Storm or Drew, who is the host of the Retro Sessions podcast and someone we've had on the show previously uh, to do Streets of Rage um, and who was kind enough to come play Street Fighter 2 with us when uh, we were sucking very bad at it. <laughs> um, so his question is also related to Street Fighter 2. What surprised you about the fighting game genre for better or worse? And what do you hope to see more of in the genre? What would you like to see less of? So uh, for me, I think the thing that surprised me the most about Street Fighter 2 specifically was the difficulty of the inputs. Uh, I just found them outrageously difficult. And it's actually, James and I have been playing a bit of uh, Street Fighter 3, and the inputs in Street Fighter 3 are like way, way, way easier. So I, it seems like Street Fighter 2 is kind of an anomaly in that regard with how difficulty the inputs yeah. are. So I, I guess that's what surprised me the most. Um, and following on from that, what I'd like to see more of and what I'd like to see less of, I think that what I like would like more and what I want more from games like Street Fighter 2 and other fighting games, is I just want more options available to the player. I think that Street Fighter 2 was pretty good. Definitely, definitely enough options for me. But in terms of if I am to continue playing fighting games and continuing to get better at them, I want to have more moves available at my disposal to react to different situations in interesting ways. What I want to see less of is them being difficult to execute. <laughs> so give, give me give me more options in combat, but don't make them difficult to do because if they're difficult to do, I'm just not going to do them and then those options may as well not exist played a lot of fighting games so uh i guess the thing that i would surprise me the most is how much um a lot of it comes down to guessing like i feel like there is like what i like about fighting games is when people are having you know a back and forth trying to outplay each other um and then when i get kind of annoyed is when lots of fights come down to things like you know, guessing what's going to happen on Wake Up, like lots of 50-50s in a row. It's like, this is just, if my opponents condition me properly, this isn't just a 50-50 realistically, but in, you know, when I'm playing against Patrick, and we both don't really know what we're doing in a lot of ways, it does feel like a lot of things can be decided by coin flips. I don't like that at all. 
Um, I felt I felt that was more true when we were playing Street Fighter Three than Two, actually, because in Street Fighter Three we had instances where one of us would punish the other with wake ups like five times in a row, and it happened both ways. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is due to us getting better and being like up to the point where we can start doing that kind of thing. Um, mm, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's what I yeah. I, somehow I'd like to see less of that. Um, although at the end of the day, it is you know fighting games are just rock paper scissors plus um so it's kind of hard to avoid um so i guess something i'd like to see more of is games having a learning curve um for their inputs that are not as binary as they have been so for example when we did street fighter 2 patrick was really struggling to do any of his special moves um and uh, you know it was either he did it or he didn't do it something i'd like to see is kind of like if the game notices that you input, you know, 80% correct, you do 80% damage with the special. So it's not like... Because one of the problems I have is that a lot of the time um, Patrick would recognize he needs to do a dragon punch, and that's a good thing. You know, he's correctly recognized he needs to do something. The game should reward him for that. And then, you know, because of his poor execution, he doesn't get rewarded for that at all. Whereas if you do what I suggest, then... You know, you still get some benefit out of getting the dragon punch off, but because your execution's poor, you're punished slightly. But it doesn't like completely nullify your decision making, right? Um, which is I, I I love that idea for the record. I think that being able to reward, you still want to reward frame perfect input, right? Like yeah. I don't want to make the game more casual in the sense that we shouldn't be rewarding the a difficult version of the inputs. But throw me a bone here, you know, like give me something. Like if if I if I spray if I'm playing an FPS game and I shoot a lot of bo- bullets at someone, I could always aim for body shots, right, instead yeah. of headshots. Yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't feel like there's any real equivalent in fighting games. Yeah, a game like Grand Blue Fantasy Versus recently, they did this thing where you can either do the motion input for a move, or you can just press a single button to do the move. But if you do that, the move goes on cooldown, and I actually really don't like that system because the problem i have with it is that new players will default to pressing the button um and that's not actually getting them closer to doing the input because they're not practicing the input whereas with what i suggested you know you're fucking it up but you're practicing and getting better and closer to doing the good input right it's just teaching you bad habits um so yeah that that other game it's like a noob mode but the point of the point like that's only going to take you so far yeah at some stage you're just going to need to learn the inputs and then you're just facing the exact same problem you are all over again yeah next thing i'd like to see more of is a continued focus on resource management i really enjoy when we play street fighter 3 the fact that i can spend parts of my super meter to power up special moves and i have to you know make decisions in the fight over when to use it and when not to use it um, I like that kind of resource management a lot. I don't really like super moves in general. I think they're, you know, too flashy and too, I don't know, you kind of have, it's it's good when you need to play around it and pay attention. But to me, that kind of resource management is less interesting than, you know, more granular um, with lots of little, you know, building up an advantage with lots of little smart decisions rather than you know you made one big decision and took off half the health bar i don't i don't like that as much um and then i guess the last thing i would say is that i'd like games to continue to have a mix of characters with different skill levels but not just 
in the sense that the characters with the exciting playstyles are locked behind high execution requirements. I think that's quite a common thing where really interesting characters are always the ones that are hard to play. I kind of hate that because it forces, you know, new players into playing boring characters and that probably doesn't want to make them keep playing the game. So that's that's an interesting idea, James, but I'm not sure it's an... I, I don't know if you can fix that. Like, I think that the thing that makes uh, those characters more interesting is their complexity. And I'm drawing more from Dota 2 now, but in Dota 2 the most interesting characters are always the most complex ones, right? Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay, so what are some... I mean, I, I, I just think this idea of um, more complex characters is kind of intrinsically tied to, to fun because as you become more familiar with the base mechanics, you want to be learning something on top of the base mechanics. And that's what those more complex heroes suggest. Let's use Fantasy Strike as an example, right? Okay. There is quite a variety of playstyles in that game. Um, let's use Rook as an example. Rook is a grappler, and he plays completely different to Grave, who is like your, you know, Ryu Shoto character who throws fireballs. Those characters play completely different. But Rook isn't very difficult to play, correct? Like, a new player could play Rook easily. Whereas yep. in Street Fighter Two, Zangief is very hard to play. So it's like you're locking variety out with complexity whereas i don't think you need to you don't need to do that right like fantasy strike doesn't do that at all so you say you say complexity i would say it's more power level isn't it um i mean you just can't play zangief if you can't pile driver right like <laughs> yeah and but that's almost like a design issue with the character like he doesn't have a well-rounded move set whereas whereas rook and fantasy strike as a grappler um, feels like he's got more tools to actually get in close. But, you know, may maybe you're right, James. I, I, I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm just saying that I think that when I think of the most fun heroes in Dota, for me, it tends to be the most complicated ones. Although, to be fair, Pudge, I find Pudge a lot of fun. And Pudge is a hero that probably isn't super difficult to play, even though he does have a difficult move. I mean, he has a difficult move, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm more than mechanically interesting. I mean, like, I don't want to lock variety out. Like, when we were yeah. playing Street Fighter 2, it felt like you could only play a character with a simple fireball or a simple ranged plan. Um, you couldn't branch out to other play styles. Whereas I think having yeah. having the, the low, like, the low player skill characters be there a variety of people to choose from is a good thing. Yeah, that's true. You you want you want everyone to feel comfortable dabbling in every character class, I guess. So, um, yeah, thank you for the question, Drew. Uh, and we'll be doing more fighting games in the future, I'm sure, and you can kick our ass in those. So with that, I think it's about time for our music break. Obviously, we didn't play a game for this episode. It's our mailbag episode. But what James and I thought we'd do is we'd just pick some music from the games we've played over the past year. Uh, the soundtrack I've gone with is Pathologic, and I'm doing the a theme called Svorsk theme. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, but uh, that's uh, Czech or Slavic language for you. This uh, this is a track that plays as you explore the steppe, uh, and as the Harrispecs, I spent a lot more time out there than I'm sure James did as a bachelor, because in the latter half of the game, you start doing spiritual quests and you start engaging with the natives that live out on the plains, kind of further away from civilization. 
And I think that this theme really gets to the heart of that spirituality and the it's it's a very minimalistic track but it feels very kind of beautiful as you're out exploring this wasteland uh you know with no one around and the more traditional instruments really come through so this is the Svorsk main theme So now we're going to Inept Sparrow. And this is a big question. I think it's I think it's a fantastic one. Okay. So do you feel the AAA focus on graphical fidelity limits the scope of gameplay on modern titles? With so much of a budget going towards visuals, do you think studios are forced to play it safe and reuse the same types of gameplay across many titles and take less risk with game mechanics? And as a follow-up, would you rather see cheaper looking graphics if it meant more innovative gameplay? Sort of how indie titles have found a lot of success. Yeah, I this one's interesting because I think that we're going, like this question comes at the issue from the wrong point of view. Like it kind of says that um, lots of AAA studios want to focus on graphics and that is causing, you know, a limiting gameplay. Whereas I feel like... Good graphics are something that basically anyone can understand and be impressed by, right? From like a small child to, you know, somebody who's played a lot of games or even someone who's never played a game before. You can look at a game and say, wow, that looks incredible, regardless of your experience with games. So I think that a lot of money in video games is tied up in the casual audience, like most of it is. Um, and because of that, you know, I think that studios focusing their efforts on things that are um, understandable and enjoyable for that audience is a smart move business-wise, like it makes total sense. Um, and that same thing, I think, is more the cause of having safe gameplay than, you know, they spent all their budget on the graphics, right? Like having easy to understand gameplay that anybody can pick up and play is probably the reason why there's less innovation because, you know, we've, games have been made for, you know, a few decades now and we kind of understand what sells well and what resonates with people. Um, and, you know, from a business point of view, like why, I, there's not much reason, like indie games take a lot of risks, but the kind of people that 
you know, play a lot of indie games are people who are already pretty familiar with video games, right? Like Patrick, you go out of your way to find niche titles, right? Absolutely. I, I, I love indie games to pieces. I, I play them all the time. I play them more than the AAA games. And I guess with your question in Epp Sparrow, the thing for me is that I agree with you that, you know, these AAA games have a big focus on graphics and simplistic gameplay and they tend to play it safe. But I guess I just don't perceive it as a problem. Uh, if AAA video games were the only video games that existed, which is kind of how it felt for that stretch from 2005 to 2010, it felt really bad because it felt like the kinds of games I was interested in weren't getting made. And instead, I got a bunch of video games that I wasn't interested in. But in today's world where there's such great diversity in the indie scene, I don't need the AAA scene to cater to me. Um, I think it's completely fine that Ubisoft is making a new Assassin's Creed game every year, that From Software is making a new Dark Souls game every year, and they keep refining that formula. Because in addition to that, there are literally a zillion indie games um, that you know are doing innovative new things that are creating spiritual successes to games of yesteryear, and that's okay. It's just like in the with movies, like. There's an, there are big action movies and there are big, uh, you know, romantic comedies and things like that. There's a new Fast and Furious movie every single year, and that's okay. And it's okay to have a, I guess, a type of media that caters to the masses, as long as we also have types of media that cater to niches. And in the gaming scene at the moment, it's literally never been better. Yeah, I'd also want to add on to this question that I'd also like to see not just risks on gameplay, but visual style as well. Like, I'd love to see something visually in the vein of Cuphead from a AAA studio. Like, I would love that. Um, but basically, all AAA visuals just, you know, ape real life right like we just realism is like the number one most popular art style for these triple a studios and that's boring to me i guess to me i don't give a shit like if the triple a studios want to keep making boring realistic visuals that's fine because it's not like there's a dearth of interesting visuals in the indie scene i mean we got ori in the blind forest 2 not too long ago which i think is one of the best looking games ever made that was made by an indie studio i love hollow knights i re my, i recently uh, just received a game on steam where it looks like it's drawn with chalk like it, it's it's crazy that if there's a visual type you like you're gonna find it um as long as you're willing to delve a little deeper so yeah AAA studios can keep playing it safe it doesn't bother me um as long as i've always got my indie scene to fall back on i guess AAA games do inform a lot of you know the trends going forward so i but like to be honest, like, I would love to see a AAA game take a risk, right? Like, I think that would be fascinating. Like, I think it would be a game I would actually play. Um, so it's something I would like to see. But like Patrick, you know, there's there's so many games coming out at the moment, right? Like, I can still find something I want to play, even if, you know, 2,000 different Call of Duty games come out in the space of three years. It just... It doesn't also doesn't impact me that much, um, but it would be cool. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. Like I, when I think of like the innovations that have occurred in gaming, like basically none of them have come from the AAA scene. It's that those innovations are, get created at a lower level, and then it eventually gets adapted into the AAA scene. Like um, DayZ was just a shitty mod for Armor Two, and now battle royales are literally everywhere. Um, Dark Souls was some weird game from some indie studio in Japan 
Now, From Software is a AAA studio, but it had to come from a smaller place before it could get adapted into the AAA scene. Dota's the Dota's the real example yeah. of that, right? Yeah, Dota, that fantastic example. Um, even something like Counter Strike, I think you can cite. Yeah, uh, like all all of these games, all of these genius innovations did not come from the AAA you know area and but that's okay i i guess that's one for i'm not complaining about it like it's fine to have mainstream gaming stuff that's easy to comprehend uh as long as indie scene stays strong and it's it's fantastic at the moment mm-hmm. okay next question which is going to be patrick talking a lot again uh <laughs> is a good question from user daria thanks so thank you for the question um what are your favorite books and why so I love that Daria has said not what is your favorite book, but what are your favorite books? Oh my god, that gives that me literally. <laughs> I know adds it one changes hour everything. to my editing time. But but once again, I've decided, like with Dark Souls two, I've decided to exercise a little bit of restraint, and um, these I wanted to nominate two books: one one that's uh in the fantasy and science fiction space, and one which which isn't. So my fa- the book I want to nominate in like the sci-fi fantasy space is a book called Tagana by Guy Cavriel K. So Guy Cavriel K writes kind of lo-fi fantasy. So his he he writes fantasy, but it tends to be in the background or a influential force of his world rather than being a major part of his storytelling and world building. Uh he takes a historical period with Tagana, it's 15th century um, Spain, where you have a bunch of warring princedoms, and he uses that as the as the basis for his world building, then adds a splash of magic. Tagana is a beautiful book. It's it's very tragic. It's got some of the best romance I've ever read in any books either. And it's very concerned with the nature of identity. The basic setup for the story is that uh, some people from the nation of Tagana, they kill the son of a sorcerer king. So in this world, there are like literally two sorcerers and they're both in charge of a kingdom and there's basically no other ones. And Brandon is so infuriated by the fact that these people killed his son that he decides to not only kill the people of Tagana and conquer them, he decides to strip their very identity away from them. So he goes into the nation of Tagana he destroys all their statues, he destroys all their literature, he destroys anything that could be possibly written down, and he casts a spell. And the spell is effectively to make it so that when anyone says Tagana, or whenever, whenever there is a mention of anything regarding their culture, it turns into white noise, and people can't understand what you're saying, and the people who are saying it can't hear it themselves. So the idea is that if you completely strip the identity from a people and from a nation, what does that do to the people of that nation? And the book is about those people struggling to regain that identity and the the things in that way. It's it's a beautiful story. I, it's a standalone book. You don't you're not committing to a long series. And I think that if you have any interest in fantasy as literature, then you cannot you cannot go past it. It's just a masterpiece. I love it to pieces. I've read it three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, James, do you want to go next, and then um, I'll I'll say my second book. Yeah, sure. So this was interesting. I actually haven't been reading a lot recently. Like I felt like 
Um, when I was younger, I read a lot. Um, and then at some point during my college years, um, I tried to read through Wheel of Time. Um, and then that put me Big off. Mistake. Yeah, I got like halfway <laughs> through and that put me off reading for years. Um, and then, you know, only recently I started listening to audiobooks in my drive to work, um, which then eventually got replaced by something else. Um, so I haven't read a heap. Honestly, like basically all of the books that I've read and enjoyed are mostly fantasy novels. Um, although, you know, there's some sci-fi. I'd say the series that I enjoy the most consistently, and it's it's fluctuated a bit over the years and I've changed my opinion, but the one I always keep coming back to is His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, the trilogy. Um, mm -hmm. I, As a kid, I got that from my aunt for Christmas, um, and I read it, you know, all in a week, and I loved it to bits. Um, it was a story about a young girl with her, you know, this is a world where everybody has kind of like their soul as a shape-shifting animal that uh, joins them and they go on this crazy adventure, you know, across time and dimensions, um, doing all sorts of stuff. And as a kid, I really loved that. But as an adult, um, I kind of realized that there's actually like a second layer to the book that when I was a small child, I didn't pick up on, which is actually that the series is a big, you know, scathing criticism uh, of religion and the church. Organized religion. Yeah, organized religion yeah. specifically. Um, and I missed that completely the first time I read it. So the second time I read it, I picked up on all that. So it was very enjoyable the second time through, if, if not more than the first time I read the book, because I was picking up on all this extra stuff that was kind of under the surface. Um, and there's all sorts of little, you know, plot lines back and forth. I think it's, you know, utterly fantastic. I don't know uh, anyone who has read that series who doesn't love it. I, I love that series to pieces. Did, did you read The Book of Dust, the um the prequel that came out? I have uh, not yet. Long? I do mean to, yeah. though. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Yeah. The characters are great. The ending is like, I love the ending. It hit me like a truck. Yeah, particularly the ending of the first book. It's fucking fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, and the books, yeah, there's this, like, this escalation. Um, yeah, it's hard to without spoilers, but it, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, if you love fantasy and sci-fi, I think it's very well written. You know how I often criticize, like, the JRPG adventure thing, where there's a bunch of friends going on an adventure? Yeah. I, I think that his Dark Materials does adventure, the, the notion of adventure really well. Yeah. The like, I, I, I think it's it's great. I One of my favorite things in the book is there's this device called, is it Altheometer or yeah, something? Yeah, the Altheometer. Like, it's a little clock. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little clock with symbols, and you can ask it a question, and it will swing to the symbols, and you have to interpret. It's almost like tarot reading, yeah. in a way. But uh, it's very cool because Lyra gets this device and to start with, she's not very good at using it or understanding. And as it goes on, she gets better and better and better. And uh, I always loved that little clock device. It was always very interesting. Yeah, because they always do the fortune telling stuff and they it says what the three symbols are. And then there's like two paragraphs of her, her trying to interpret what's going to happen. And she gets better at it as the book goes on and she grows older. Yeah. And then and then it cuts to like this person who studied it their entire life and and like it's yeah it's 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 very good how how there's there's like almost a scientific approach um mm. and that, yeah like you said there's this big struggle between science and God in the books that is underlying and overshadowing everything yeah. so great pick James I I also love that series mm, so okay so what's your next book Patrick. So I just wanted to pick one fantasy book and then pick another book from outside of it. And the book I picked is Catch-22. 
So Catch Twenty Two is a it's a book set during World War Two. Uh, it's about a bomber pilot called Yasarian. And the thing about Yasarian is is that he's very upset. He doesn't understand why there are people trying to kill him. And there is a war going on, but he, he thinks it's mental that everyone's trying to kill him. So what he tries to do is he tries to get out of um get out of the war. He's like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. It's driving me insane. Like, I, I cannot handle this. Every time I go up there, I think I'm going to die. I'm going to go insane. So he goes and sees his doctor and he says, listen, I'm going insane doing this. You need to discharge me from the army. But the doctor has a comeback for that. He says, well, you know, it w- it's only natural that you're going insane wanting to get well, while you're being getting shot at while you're almost dying. So actually, the very fact that you're insane means that you're sane and I can't discharge you. The only people who, the only insane reaction to, you know, getting shot at is to, is to want to stay fighting, not want to exit it. So unfortunately, I can't discharge you. And that is Catch-22. Catch-22 is that no matter what, you're screwed. There's no way out of a situation. And the entire book is built on Catch-22s about the insanity of military service. The book is chaotically structured. It doesn't start at the start and go from start to finish. It starts in seemingly a random spot in the middle and jumps around all over the place. And I and it wavers from absurd farce to absolutely devastating tragedy in the space of a paragraph. I think it is the best novel about war because it captures the absurdity of war while also not diminishing the tragic reality of war. Uh, if you enjoy... If you enjoy books on war, I think Catch-22 is a no-brainer. If you like funny, absurdist books, it's a no-brainer. Um, I've read it like three times. I, I think it's a masterpiece. Read it. Mm. So my non-fantasy pick, and I'm, I'm just throwing an extra on here, is actually um, a book I read during... Uh, it was probably like the last book I read after Ditching Wheel of Time for Good, um, which was A Clockwork Orange. Um, and I really enjoyed that book, which is a big, you know, a big moral question about how, you know, we should deal with irrefutably terrible people um, and how we should deal with them. And actually, this, you know, kind of moral ethical side of the book isn't what makes me enjoy it at all. Um, I think it's, you know, interesting in its own way. But to me, the interesting thing about A Clockwork Orange is the way in which the characters speak. Um, the author basically invented their own slang, basically, and had all these disgruntled youths talking in this what is effectively incomprehensible on your first time reading, because the first chapter, the characters speak in this heavy dialect that is basically incomprehensible the first time you read it. Um, and then as you go through the book, you know, you pick up on things, and then they basically repeat the first chapter again at the end, um, almost word for word, and you can just understand it perfectly. And to me, this is so fascinating from like a language acquisition point of view, like I'm learning a second language currently, um, and just the way that people naturally pick up words, you know, without being told what they mean, just through context. Um, this is a brilliant example of that, uh, and I just thought it was so fascinating. So um, I really love that book for that reason. I, I also really like A Clockwork Orange, although I think the movie's even better. It, it's interesting, you mentioned what happens when you have a character that is irredeemable. Well, the book actually uh, 
without getting too specific with spoilers, is actually different to the movie in that regard because the book has an extra chapter at the end that the movie doesn't that shows redemption of the main character, mm. whereas the movie ends on a tone that is the opposite of redemption with uh, with him going back to his old ways and the movie just ends. So, uh, yeah, I think that the author had an idea in mind. He thought they would, you know, that these characters were redeemable, whereas Kubrick did not. And that uh, completely changes the tone of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The last chapter, wasn't that added later after the initial printing, I believe? Because I remember... No, so so what happened was it got... It was... um, It was basically cut from one of the editions. So it was... Oh, maybe you're right. Okay, yeah, you, you might be right. I don't remember. All I, I remember know that... is that the version of the book I had, there was this little gap between the end of where the movie ends and that chapter you're talking about. And I think there was mm. like an author's note in between it or something like that. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. It it was either that or it was like present in the American edition and not the European edition and vice versa. So in the original edition, it wasn't there in some in some editions mm. but yeah it, it was inconsistent and uh yeah the obviously kubrick went for his own version <laughs> but yeah um once again james good good pick i uh i also really enjoy that and the process of learning their dialect mm. uh her- horrific book horrific movie so be be one trigger warning for that one yeah okay so it's another question from daria thank you which i actually um, forgot to write in my notes so thankfully Patrick will answer this first for me so that I can quickly think of an answer um, <laughs> what do you think about sandbox games do you have any favorites I'm still of the opinion that you should play sims 2 for the podcast by the way <laughs> so um, nowadays I'd say I'm less interested in sandbox games because of the limited playtime I have like when you have less time you kind of want to get into something with a more definitive objective than play say a little bit of a sandbox game for an hour and a half i will say i played a lot of minecraft when it first came out so i, I played minecraft for when it was first in alpha when it was just creative mode and um when they first re- released survival mode i loved it to pieces i thought it was incredible um the way that game worked in survival mode when it first released i i think the thing about sandbox games is that you really have to make your own fun. And I think that as as an adult, it's harder for me to make my own fun in the same way that it's harder for me to just pull out a pile of Lego and have fun building it. Um, the sandbox games that I enjoy nowadays tend to have direction in them as well. Like, for example, uh, there's a game called Subnautica, which is a survival game, you know, survival crafting game in the vein of other sandbox games. But there's a story, there's a main story and there's a goal to work towards. And I think that if you have that main story and goal to work towards and you can kind of deviate back towards the sandbox in bits and pieces, uh, then then I'm far more on board with it. So I like when my sandbox games have a main path that I can, you know, gradually follow as time goes on than a pure sandbox experience. Yeah, I'm mostly in the same boat. Like, as a kid, I loved Minecraft and The Sims also. Um, And as an adult, I find that the thing I value in games is either a good narrative or the game posing puzzles or questions for me to solve. Like, you know, this enemy is difficult, how do I beat it? Or even if it's something straightforward as a puzzle game. 
Um, and sandboxes don't do that at all. Um, and like that's the entire entirety of the fun that I get from playing video games is trying to figure out how to, you know, meet my goals. And I guess I struggle with making my own goals in sandbox games if there isn't like a, a very blatant goal for the player to follow. Um, so I'm much less interested in these types of games these days. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing one for the show for sure because it'd be interesting to talk about, but I basically would just never pick one to play in my own time ever, I don't think. Specifically with The Sims, I mean, the truth is when I was a kid, I didn't, I played The Sims, but I didn't play The Sims as a video game in the traditional sense. I would cheat myself a lot of money and then I would build houses. And that's what I do. I treated it as a as a Lego game or a Minecraft game, where I was just using it to build things. And I'm not sure how much I'd actually enjoy playing The Sims as a as a video game without you know cheating a lot. So I've kind of been reluctant to do the series because the way I engaged with it as a, as a kid is very different to how I would engage with it for the podcast. Yeah, to me, games these days are all about optimization and doing things the quote unquote right way and. Uh... It it seems against the spirit of the sandbox experience to me, to be honest. So uh, Daria had another question that we've missed over. I don't know if you've got this one written down. Do you re-listen to your own podcasts? If yes, do you have favorite episodes? And do you have any least favorite? Yeah, so obviously during editing, I have to listen to it all again. Uh, that doesn't really count. So other than that, I haven't done that yet. I do plan to do it at some point, but I figure in like 20 years kind of thing, I want to go <laughs> back and listen from the start to, you know, because it'd be interesting to see, you know, if you listen, if I listen to myself talk and I constantly disagree with what I'm saying in the show, I think that'd be really entertaining. I imagine that will happen a lot when I get around to doing it. Um, as for favorite episodes, always the story heavy ones like Archimedean Dynasty, Pathologic, um, anything we get to, to talk about story for a long period of time, I really enjoy. Um, any of the episodes where we talk about games that we both dislike strongly, very critical of, you know, like um, Jet Set Radio, I enjoy those discussions a lot. Um, the least favorite episodes, to be honest, are the ones where one of us loves the game and the other one hates it. More, more when I love the game and Patrick hates it because it's like, I... I feel like Patrick is a lot better than I am at being direct in conversation. So if I hate something um, and I'm not on the show, I'll very rarely express it straight away. But Patrick is like, that's his default, it feels like. He'll like, <laughs> I fucking hate this, it's garbage. Where I'm like, it's kind of bad, but you know, yeah. Uh, and I'm not really like that outside of the show, but I've kind of grown into that more as we've become, you know, that's clearly what works better for us when we're talking together. Um, so when I love a show, like, I love a game, like when I loved playing Luna and I binged Luna over a week because I just enjoyed it so thoroughly, and then I felt like we were recording and, you know, it was like, I felt like three quarters of the episode was like me trying to like get a word in. And then every, yeah, and then every time I did get a word in, it was met with like 10 minutes of you're wrong. <laughs> so, I know. I was just so, it inspired passions in me, Jay's. What yeah, can I say? Yeah. It's like, it's very, I feel like when I like a game, but Patrick doesn't, it's very hard to me for me to spend um, a good portion of the episode talking about why I like it. Um, so I guess those are the ones that, although they do make like 
they do make good episodes, so I'm not against, you know, like I like when those episodes happen because they make good content, um, but it, they're frustrating to record from that point of view, I guess. You're making me feel bad, Jess. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's true, right? I, I, I know, yeah, I, I guess when I really dislike something, I can't help myself. Yeah. I need to go on a rant, yeah. and that's, that's just what happens, yeah. So answering this question, I... um. I re-listen to every single episode after James edits, so like we get a second pass of it. I won't always listen all the way to the end, end if I'm time constrained, but I'll always listen to at least the first two thirds and usually the full thing. Um, I think it's funny. I think my favorite episode is like the opposite of James because the one I would nominate as one of my favorite is definitely our System Shock One episode, huh. where uh, we had um, where we had Nick on from the Salt City Games podcast. Uh, Precisely because we all had different opinions and we got to argue about them. But I think that what Nick did was that he was a restraining influence on us because we had a guest. We were better behaved than we normally were. <laughs> and instead of yelling at one another, we were quite delicate and diplomatic in our disagreements. So, <laughs> so yeah, if, uh, if ever we do, do another thing that inspires passion, we probably need a guest to help regulate. No, no, no. I do remember this specific instance in System Shock 2 where I just was like, I fucking hate this game. And Nick was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one you felt strongly about. Yeah. <laughs> and I would cite my least favorite episode as one right at the very beginning, which is the Banjo-Kazooie episode. And there's a specific reason for that. So uh, James and I, you know, we were still brand new to podcasting. So we, so so first of all, we're a little we're a little rusty in that episode. It's a it's a little bit of an ugly episode. We don't really know what we're doing. But the thing that really made it take a turn for a worse is that James and I got into a very serious argument over something incredibly stupid, and the argument went for like thirty minutes. It was it was awful. Like it was a very very silly argument. And I feel like when we resumed after that argument, things just weren't the same. Yeah. We just didn't have the chemistry and we were both being very holding ourselves back to make sure we didn't get into an argument again. And I think that the latter half of that episode just is kind of a little boring and uninteresting. So unfortunately, that Banjo-Kazooie episode, not not the best listening, I don't think. Yeah, it's kind of unavoidable, right? Like I felt like when we started the show... We didn't quite grasp how different each of our feelings on video games were, like you coming mm. from a PC background, me from a console background, how critical each of us is, you being much more critical than me to begin with by like a lot. Um, mm. You disliking and liking, valuing very different things from stories and that kind of thing. So let's basically unavoidable that that would happen at some point um i'm glad it happened on episode two, two though right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. good that we got that out of the way and i think something a lot of people i was definitely terrible at this um is when you get into an argument just focusing on trying to get to the somewhat of the truth of the matter rather than trying to win or like trying mm. to avoid getting heated trying to avoid like if someone's if you love this thing to bits and someone says they hate it um avoiding feeling personally attacked lots yes, lots of yeah. that's the main thing like it is not an attack on me that patrick says he hates luna you know and that's something you know as a younger person i struggled with a lot it just felt like i felt you know you feel a bit embarrassed when someone goes on a rant about something you like and they hate it it's like 
dealing with that and being more adult about it and learning to have your arguments go back and forth and know when to end like understand when you have both fully expressed your opinion in full detail and recognizing that okay we've listened to each other and we're just not going to change our opinion you know that's how i feel that's how you feel that's fine and that's fine yeah, yeah and then moving that's on okay. yeah that's that's been really important to learn um and i think that um we saw that when we did our dark souls episode because yeah. you and i got into an argument that actually wasn't too far removed from, from the, the banjo kazooie one yeah but, but we like but we but we talked it out and then we just resumed the podcast and everything was completely fine. Yeah, it was. Like it was just it was just completely fine because we we hashed it out and figured it out. Whereas with the Benji Kazooie one, we didn't. We didn't know how to We were just like Yeah, we didn't know yeah. how to handle our emotions, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, you know, Benji Kazooie, very emotional subject, obviously. It was such so. a stupid fucking thing too. It was it like was, my yeah. point was like I think it's cool that all the levels have like a monument in the middle that lets the player orientate themselves even if there isn't a mini map and you're like but it's so small who the fuck needs No 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 <laughs> let's not like that Should we should we be revis- revisiting this James uh, maybe this will be the death of the podcast Yeah uh, it's it was you said something like it stops the player from getting lost yes. and that's what I took I I took exception to that phrasing i'm like the levels are too small to get lost in yeah and then that went on and on for about 30 <laughs> minutes of us just saying the same thing over and over so yeah benjo kazooie i mean the tony hawks episode is of course famously bad but it's bad for you know a good reason uh, i feel like the benjo kazooie sub uh, episode suffered because we weren't doing a good job basically and that that's what makes it my least favorite yeah the first episode where i felt really good about the episode was castlevania i think mm. um i think that's where we started to understand well not f- hit our stride well, yeah not hit our stride i think that took a bit still but that's when we kind of you know we recorded three episodes already so we didn't feel super nervous about it and we kind of understood mm-hmm. the structure we were going for and how you know we talk as people so that was when i started feeling a bit better about things um but yeah i'd say the story heavy episodes the one i like listening to the most um last question from daria um was there ever a game you both vetoed playing (laughs) basically no right because the way the way our show works is that one of us picks a game and brings it to the other person so we're never in a situation where we both need to veto a game yeah the only time i guess the only exception to this is when we like when we're like i want to play this game it's 80 hours long and we're both like that's too long but that doesn't really count but i don't think there's ever been a time where we've both been like we're never playing this game yeah because yeah i and i think this is a good thing it means that at least one of us when they come up with a game are interested in the show so even if the other person doesn't have a great time at least the other person will have something interesting to say yeah so luckily we're not like spinning a wheel and randomly picking a game and then we have to suffer through it's always one person inflicting suffering on the other and it's definitely been good to play games like i wouldn't normally play right like it gives you absolutely yeah yeah. a broader understanding of things which has been beneficial i think um so yeah no I i don't think there's a game to single out here um, although Ben would say Baldur's Gate 2 <laughs> but that's again it's very long and I actually would want to do it for the show so so, so on that pot topic um, 
do Baldur's Gate to your cowards, you cowards, also known as Ben, as well as Mayday Mima, wanted to ask if we would consider doing more community involvement for games that both have robust single player and multiplayer experiences. So James, we're going to do more multiplayer games? Yeah, so I think the question is specifically like, would you play the single player for the show but have the multiplayer be the community involvement, I think is the the question they're asking. Like sure. like if we did Halo 1 again, we'd do Halo, you know, lobbies or something. Um I wouldn't be I wouldn't be against that. It's just that time. It's time thing, right? Like when when we do community single player together, like Street Fighter, or we just do a pure multiplayer game, um, it feels like that time is well spent because it's giving me information to make the show, you know, to form my notes and how I feel about the game. Um, whereas the multiplayer, I guess, you know, as a whole experience, that can help. Um, but it wouldn't really be a huge focus of the episode, so I'd be less interested in it. As for doing more multiplayer, um, I really enjoyed doing the multiplayer for Street Fighter 2. I thought it was really enjoyable. We obviously had to talk about the game while we were playing it, but that's fine. I think the episode turned out okay anyway. So, you know, absolutely, it's something I want to do. It's just a matter of finding you know, games that people are willing to play with us <laughs> um, is the main point of concern, I guess. Yeah, I think what you have to think about is like, the the problem at the end of the day is how much time we have to play these games. I think that what we could do is that if we were to pick a game like Heroes of Might and Magic 3 again, it might have been better to play like 10 hours of skirmish and then 20 hours of multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Because I I don't think I necessarily got I don't think I necessarily got a lot out of playing this single player of that game for thirty hours straight. I probably would have got more out of splitting the time between single player and multiplayer. But for the most part, I would rather pick exclusively multiplayer games and exclusively single player games and give and give it the time it deserves than trying to awkwardly squeeze in both. If we do pick a game that has a multiplayer focus, then I'm happy to go with that. But I don't think we have time to do both in a single episode. Yeah. They, somebody mentioned StarCraft 1 as a multiplayer-only title, and I'm kind of... I don't even hate that idea, because to me, like, if I was to play StarCraft, it would be because I'm interested in the multiplayer. So, yeah, um, you know, that's something I don't hate the idea of, although... Yeah, I'd suck I, I, I guess I get. I guess I would if we were to do StarCraft one at this stage after reading about the campaign and everything. It seems a little bland. Yeah, uh, I would if I'm going to do StarCraft, I would do it as a multiplayer title rather than trying to squeeze both multiplayer and single player in. Definitely. Um, yeah. So so basically, yes, we want to do more community involvement, but I don't think we'll be trying to squeeze in both single player and multiplayer experience in terms of evaluating a game. We'll probably just go one or the other. Mm. Okay. So one more question from Mayday Mima again. Um, as Aussies that had to go through the PAL problem of 50 hertz gaming, did you ever have a moment where an old game you played back in the day was so much better or easier when you switched to an emulator? Now, of course, he's referring to the difference between PAL and NTSC, or whether you know the uh, it's to do with the the power rating that we get in Australia and the UK compared to the US. Um, so a lot of old games were actually slowed down by like ten frames, or you know roughly that, in order to you know compensate for the power um, the power output from our sockets. 
Um, so I actually have never noticed this ever, basically. Um, yeah, and, and if you've never noticed, I definitely haven't noticed because I was, I've played a lot less console games than you. You know, and I've played N64 games and PS2 games on an emulator. I, I really never noticed that difference. And I know, like, actually a lot of Nintendo games um, did it the proper way instead and just sped the game up for PAL release so that it was not noticeable anyway. Um, so yeah, sorry, I didn't, I, I, I've never noticed this, thankfully. The main thing I've noticed is that consoles have shitty FPS, and they always have compared to PC. So once again, PC, Master mm. Race. Yeah, although so. that is changing in these days, you know, it's almost I mean, even, even now, even, even the new consoles are still only running at 60 FPS, whereas I would say 144 FPS is the, is the standard for PC games. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So they're always Although, they're always I mean it, it depends it'll on reach the a point where they yeah, it'll reach a point where they reach equality, but um yeah, I I don't like consoles. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's noticed that yet. <laughs> uh maybe. Alrighty, so it's time for another music break. Um as Pat said, we're gonna be choosing some music from this year that stood out to us in particular. And if Patrick's gonna choose Pathologic, then for me the next best choice is of course East Oath and Felgana. Um, we hadn't covered any music similar to this before uh, when doing the show, and I just thought that everything on the soundtrack was an absolute blast. So we already picked my two favorite songs for the episode. So for this one, we're going to be choosing a track called Be Careful, which I think shows the great range of the soundtrack uh, while also being, you know, on theme. So here is Be Careful.
All right, so next question is from Lions from the Nostalgia Goggles podcast. I discovered these guys recently. Um, their show format is incredibly similar to ours, and much to my disappointment, they started before us, so I can't even say they shamelessly ripped us off. It's the other way around. Uh, and he asks, he asks, what is a game you love that is generally hated, like a secret shame game? James, do you have any... Do you have any do you have any secret shames in your gaming library? Um, not really, to be honest. I don't play a heap of games that are like that, I guess. You don't really give a shit. Yeah, <laughs> unless it has, like, adult content or something like that, I, I don't really give a shit, yeah. Yeah, my, my answer to this is probably um, Call of Duty. <laughs> like... And I mean that in the sense that I think Call of Duty has this reputation as being this dude bro game that, you know, is for brainless jocks. But the thing is, I really like Call of Duty single player games. Like, I like them a lot. I always play them on veteran. Um, I'd always buy the new one and play it through start to finish. I actually find it very relaxing playing through those games on veteran. And I think that these games are generally hated by the... Um, like the core I gaming the- audience, right? By the core gaming audience, and probably I'd say the critical part of the of the gaming journalism section. Like, I think that you know journalism sites like IGN often would give these games a lot of nine out of tens. But I think the more you know, the 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 gaming journalists that were a bit more sophisticated are very dismissive of Call of Duty and the Call of Duty experience in favor of things that are a bit more cerebral cerebral that tickle your brain uh or you know tell a better story and things like that but i've always liked these games i just i just like the challenge of trying to get through them a veteran and i've played all of them at this state all the single player games Mm. i will say that as time has gone on i've liked them less and less because they are more and more and more linear and more and more and more taking control away from the player constantly so that the game can show you its cool cutscene or building explode or whatever, and it's really getting on my nerves. But I, I would say the first half of the Call of Duty games I'm big fans of, and I, I enjoy playing them a lot. Wish I had an answer to this one. I thought about it a lot, and I just cannot think. Maybe someone else could tell me that I like a game that everyone hates. Well, <laughs> well James, you should be ashamed of playing and enjoying jrpgs does it does that help they're not hated though they're just hated by you <laughs> yeah that is true that, that, that is fair it, you, you know what you're bang on it isn't a game that's generally hated it's just um something that patrick specifically dislikes and a lot of other I people mean, though it's pretty divisive it's, it's hard it is hard to find haters of video games in general like because the people who love a game have a louder voice than those who dislike i'm not so sure that's true there are definitely people who are vocal about disliking games like uh when doom eternal came out so many people were very happy to say that they hated it um just as many Mm -hmm. but that game was like very 50 50 people either loved that game or hated that game um i feel like it was more positive overall though yeah if you look at the reviews for doom eternal specifically it's just yeah so that kind of talks to the opposite of what you're saying it's like people are like louder when they hate something yeah that's true that's fair yeah that's okay maybe maybe you're just a mainstream person who only likes popular things like call of duty (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right well may keep thinking james maybe we can cycle back towards circle back to this at the end this next one is from a user named uh sexy genocide um Mm. and made a memer 
Uh, and it goes, what genre do you think best stands the test of time based on the games played so far and which the least? Uh, this is another question where I question the premise of the question itself. Because to me, I've always thought of genres as being um unrelated to quality or time periods i guess oh time period like obviously certain genres are more popular in certain time periods right um but like to me a genre a genre itself doesn't stand the test of time because it changes with time um you know like shooters have evolved massively over the past few decades um same with basically every genre um so i guess like to me the question is a bit strange um, and I don't have a good answer for the direct question. Um, but I guess what I would say is that I would identify certain genres as undergoing more change over time than others. Like, I think there's some genres that haven't changed very much at all over the past few decades, where others have changed wildly. Um, and, you know, their initial, you know, games that came out weren't that hot. Um, I guess, you know, this comes back to us doing Crystalis and Luna, is that I think I, you know, I, I haven't said this to Patrick yet, but I think after we did those episodes that um, I'm also less high on, like, classic JRPGs than the ones from the PS2 era and onwards. Um, even though I did enjoy those when we played through them, it was just less than the ones I'd played later. Um, so I'd say that genre had a lot of growing to do even though I love it to bits. I'd say platformers are probably pretty static. Like, obviously we've gone from early Mario titles and there's a lot of popularity with, like, Meat Boy-style games where there's, you know, just lots of really precise jumps to do as opposed to being, like, uh, you know, going through a fairgrounds and seeing all the crazy attractions. Um, but, yeah, in general, I don't think genres age um, as a, in principle. So I, I have a pretty concrete answer to this, actually. And I would say that the genre that has stood the best test of time the best is the stealth genre. I knew you would say that. And then, because, yeah. like, Thief 1, it's clearly mechanically very sound. But then we did something like, I don't know, like Hitman 1, uh, or we did, like, um, No One Lives Forever. Splinter Cell was pretty good. Yeah, Splinter Cell was pretty good, but it was still, to me, it's a mixed bag. Like, some of them are really good and some of them are bad. And that comes around again to being like, it's just on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not the genre itself that, you know, well, is standing Hit the test Hitman of time. Well, Hitman 1 and No One Lives Forever are hybrid stealth games. And this is actually important to my thesis. So I think that something that's very interesting about stealth games is that I think that pure stealth games, ste where stealth is the primary focus, are actually very rare. Uh, developers have this insistence on adding more and more and more, and they're not really necessarily understanding what they're taking away by adding in features. Yeah, that's how you get terrible genres like immersive sims. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he he here's the thing. Uh, so I love immersive sims as well, right? And but they're two exactly of my favorite what immersive... you're talking about, right? They're stealth games where they've added shit on top of it and taken away from Ab the self-experience. Absolutely, they have, James. I 100% agree with you. Okay. Um, so, so, so Deus Ex, the, the two that come to mind are the new Deus Ex games, Human Revolution and Mankind Divided, and Dishonored. 
And both of those games have added a lot to the stealth genre, making them almost hybrid stealth RPGs slash immersive sims and how they play out. But what what the thing I'm trying to highlight, James, isn't that therefore Dishonored or Deus Ex is bad. That's not true at all. I love those games. What I'm trying to say is that the purity of the sorry the pure stealth experience still has a lot to offer today like going back and playing thief 2 or splinter cell or thief 1 in today's era is still a wonderful experience because the things that have changed in the stealth genre to evolve it haven't really evolved it in a um in a straight upwards direction it's just produced a different kind of experience dishonored and day the new deus ex games aren't bad games i think they're fantastic games but i think that they're not better games than thief one or thief two or even splinter cell they've just taken it in a different direction and they've kind of morphed it into a completely different game so the reason i say stealth and these classic stealth games in particular have stood the test of time is that you can play it today and there's not really anything better than Thief 2 in terms of the pure stealth experience, in my opinion. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to get at um, earlier too. It's like these genres, you know, people back then didn't really understand games that well. Um, and the people, well, obviously they, you know, they knew something because they made a great game. But like when they made Thief 1... Like you said, it's like they hit the nail on the head instantly and they distilled what makes a stealth game fun into its, you know, pure essence and they made a game based on that, right? Whereas I think in a lot of cases, you know, the first few games in a genre is very rudimentary and people are making it without a proper understanding and that understanding has increased as more games in the genre have been introduced. And I'm not suggesting that there's like a perfect game for every genre, but like you said, I think the stealth game, the stealth experience was understood quite quickly. Um, whereas other genres like puzzle games, for example, uh, were mm. garbage to begin with. And it took a long time for that genre to progress to a point where lots of the games coming out were really consistently enjoyable. Like, Puzzle games back in the day, you think of stuff like point-and-click adventures, and then, you know, mid-2000s, we had stuff like Portal 1 and Braid come out, which, you know, had a huge influence on the genre. Um, you know, stuff like Myst back in the day, I guess, is another example. The, the puzzle game genre had a lot of growing up to do from since its inception. From a gameplay perspective. Yeah, so I'd yeah. say that, you know, if I had to say one that took the longest time to grow... Um, it's that, but it's weird. Like, I, like, would I say it's aged poorly? Well, like the genre itself has actually aged well because it's gotten better, right? Uh, I guess I'd say that you know old games in that genre tend to age poorly, um, whereas old games in the stealth genre tend to aim uh, age well, just because the understanding that the genre was better. Does that is that yeah, is that I, fair? I, yeah, I, I think that's what the heart of the question was more about. It was, it was a question about which, um, at least that's how I understood it. Yeah. For me, the worst, the worst. I think puzzle games is probably the best answer. For worst, I, I, I didn't. I had I had JRPGs written down, but honestly, I haven't played enough modern JRPGs to have a point of comparison. I just assume that when you've, after I played the absolute garbage that were those RPGs, it can't possibly get worse. 
So I assume they, they get better than that. But puzzle games is an even better answer because as I've said many times before, I really strongly dislike adventure games gameplay. Mm. They had great stories, great characters, great humor, great personality, great aesthetics. But when it comes down to the experience of playing the video game, just utterly miserable. And we've we've moved on and evolved to a point where puzzle games do a better job. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, puzzle games, I think, is, is a great answer, James. Yeah, for, for one that's aged well, I'm going to say racing games. I'd say that, you know, they haven't evolved a lot. You know, the core experience of a racing game has been the same forever. And then to me, I always loved them, you know, when I play them, like every racing game we've played on the show, I've loved bits, uh, be it F-Zero, Burnout 3, Pod Racer, you know, anything like that. Yeah, that's that. true. I think that they have not changed a heap. You know, even Mario Kart, for example, like Kart Racers, which we haven't done on the show yet, but, you know, the Kart Racer has not changed its formula at all since, like, this first one um so you know i'd say races is my answer to this question yeah that, that's a good answer mm. anyway good good question thank you thank you for that um so the next question comes from user hexity who's a personal friend of um myself and patrick um outside of the show and their question is how do you guys feel you've gone with the podcast this year any real highs or lows that come to mind so uh, I'm actually thrilled with how the podcast has gone this year. Uh, our downloads are great. And I think that the games we played this year are probably the best lot of games that we've done so far. Uh, it doesn't have like the absolute bestest games, but even the games that I disliked and ended up not recommending, I think that they had a lot of interesting elements to them. Like something like Pikmin pathologic even something like space channel 5 like i didn't loathe i didn't loathe playing these games really at any point uh sounded like you loathed playing pathologic <laughs> yeah sorry i i guess what i'm more getting at is that even the games i didn't like there was still a lot of aspects that i was intrigued about and enjoyed and wanted to talk about yeah whereas i we've played games previously where I was just bored or un unengaged. Like like last year, just as an example of a game that I haven't brought up very much, um, Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War, the single player of that RDS, I really found that game extremely boring to play. Mm. And I was super disappointed in it because of how much I'd enjoyed it when I was younger. And it ended up being incredibly formulaic and dull and uninteresting and easy and sloggy and yeah there's nothing that bad the, the the games we've done this year have been better in my yeah opinion. i felt that way about stuff like the two towers and like maybe tribes yeah Vengeance. yeah yeah there's just games where yeah it was just a very medium experience but it wasn't like you know when we played kingdom under fire the crusades that game there was stuff to talk about about that game yes like a lot yeah. to talk about you know even stuff we hated like system shock or luna there's a lot to talk about you know there's it makes you feel things even if it's a negative emotion you know and those are exciting i felt similar to you about this year i enjoyed it felt like a very long year um i enjoyed the vast majority of the games we played this year i think um and even the ones i really didn't like like fallout one you know it was a good time we had chris on the show to talk about so 
you know, in that sense, I thought it was really fun. And I also felt really good about all the guest episodes we had this year. And I felt good about basically every guest episode we've had, but I really... We're getting better at them. <laughs> but yeah, but I feel like I understand how to do them now um, a bit better, so they go a lot smoother. And I think everyone that we had on the show from from Drew from Streets of Rage 2, Chris from Fallout, and another Chris um, from Prince of Persia... I enjoyed all of those a lot, and I had people tell me they also enjoyed those um, from listening to them. So yeah, I think I like the selection of games that we went through this year more than last year. Um, I think last year um, I was too focused on trying to pick strange games that I thought would be interesting to talk about, but didn't quite <laughs> pan out. I think we hit a better middle ground this year of picking... You know, games that are well liked, um, and we did some sequels and stuff. That yeah, was that was fun. Yeah, um, I guess for you know retrospectives as a whole, uh, my only disappointment of this year is that I haven't gotten around to doing as much writing as I want to for the website. I, Patrick has been you know out of time as well, so that hasn't been yeah super productive. That's probably like my only major negative feeling about this year. Me, it's funny. I was about to say the exact same thing. My major disappointment is that I haven't done as much writing as I would have liked. I, I've just felt more time poor, and I, I've, writing is very much a process that takes me a long, a long time because I want to do a really good job and write an article that's worth reading. I don't like just posting an article for the sake of it. Mm. So I'm in the middle of working on a pathologic review, but I've been working on it on and off for like two to three months now just because i i you know will spend several days just until i come to a set of paragraphs that i like so i'm going to keep writing on uh keep working my writing i've got um i've got a little holiday coming up so i'm going to try and get something posted in that time but yeah i just wish i'd done more writing i love writing and i love putting my uh, opinions out there to the world in written form yeah the worst part about it for me is i guess that to me, articles are a boost in views that I don't have to do any work because Patrick does it all. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's fair game considering you do literally all the editing yeah. games. So. <laughs> it's fine. I understand. And I, I had two games I wanted to write reviews for this year and just never got around to it because I was lazy. So gonna gonna kick myself for that and try to get new year's resolution yeah, new games. year's resolution do some fucking writing dickhead right 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 one article this year yeah sure. <laughs> yeah it'll take that long um okay so so i got a question from drew now so, um if you could buy yourself any game for the holidays regardless of price what would it be and what would you buy as a gift for the other person that's weird i actually you know because we've done the show and we've argued so much and i've come to realize how hard it is to understand other people i hate buying gifts now because i get decision paralysis because i'm like there's no possible because i understand now that there's literally no way i can buy someone a gift without asking anymore because you know whenever i go and i wander like if we do secret santa at work i just spend hours wandering around the shops and every time i look at something and think you know would this be a good gift i think of 10 million reasons why it wouldn't be and i, I just hate buying gifts for people so i ask people not to get me stuff um so that i can do the same um so would just if i wanted to get patrick a game i would literally ask him what he wants i would not just choose one because i know from doing the show that what i like 
um, and what I think Patrick lights don't line up very often. <laughs> um, so I would just ask. Um, so I would get him the game he wants. So for buying myself a game for the holidays, regardless of price, uh, is this does this mean I get the game for like free or like is there a game I just really want? I don't know. I I don't currently I'm in this weird state where I don't strongly want any game at the moment. I'm just happy to play what comes up for the show and then a bunch of multiplayer stuff at the time. So I don't have a good answer for this one, unfortunately. Yeah. So for me, I uh, I guess the thing is, is that if there's a game I want, and there are a few games I want, I just the ones buy that it. come to mind that are coming out soon. Yeah, I, I just buy them. So the ones that are coming to mind are Elden Ring and Hollow Knight Silk Song. When those games come out, I'm going to buy them on day one because I want those games. But if I specifically had to choose a game for the holidays that I could have for free regardless of price, I guess I would pick a game that isn't one that I desperately want, but a new release that I'm kind of interested in. And I think for me, that's the single player campaign of Halo Infinite. Um, I've played... I really enjoy both Halo 1 and 2 and then I kind of found myself dropping off. And what I've seen of Halo Infinite kind of looks interesting, like they've innovated the combat with the grappling hook and everything. But I'm not going to spend $90 on it. There's just no way in hell that I'm that engaged or invested in Halo Infinite to do that. But if I could have it for free, if I could have it just drop into my... Then I'd probably install it and have a good time. So it's funny that the game I want regardless of price is kind of the games I'm middling on because the games I really want I would be buying regardless of price anyway. Yeah, if it, if, if price wasn't a concern then I'd probably like honestly it'd just be a bunch of fighting games that I want to try but no Oh uh, yeah, that's a because, good because like I'd know that I, I know that I'd play them for like an hour with somebody and then I'd never get a game ever again. That's what happens. You buy one and then you both say, yeah, we'll play this. And then it just drops off eventually, um, unless it has a good online component. So I'd say stuff like I'd want to try Melty Blood type Lumina and I'd want to try Grand Blue Fantasy Versus and a bunch of these other games that I don't want to commit the money to. I just want to give them a go for a few hours. Um, yeah, yeah, stuff like answer. that. Yeah. Um, as for the other part of it, I actually... Um... So as I was, I always, I like browsing Steam and looking at my, um, you know, recommended and kind of delving into the dark depths of Steam to find weird titles. And I found this one called Cyrilim Ultimate, which is like this weird Pokemon-like breeding game that has insane depth and all these mechanics and all these traits and everything. And I'm like, ah, this is right up James's alley. Because I think that if I were to buy a game for James, it would be an overwhelmingly mechanical driven experience. Yeah. I want to find something that's got like insanely deep mechanics and layers and layers of overlapping things that you have to read the wiki for to understand. Because yeah. I think I could I could buy James a narrative experience, but I think that the kind of narrative experiences James likes are quite hard for me to pin down and understand sometimes. Mm. Like uh, it's he, he's got his own unique tastes and I haven't quite grokked that in terms of narrative. But I know that if I give him a game that's just got a zillion numbers and ways to <laughs> rearrange those numbers that 
he he could get engaged into that. ADHD has its uh, perks yeah. when trying to figure Pat- out what <laughs> trying to figure out what people like. <laughs> Patrick, uh, yeah, Patrick's going to gift me the video game equivalent of Microsoft Excel. <laughs> Correct, and I'm going to enjoy it. it. <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did look at that game when he showed me on Steam, and I was like, oh, I probably would like it. And it's a dungeon crawler, <laughs> which I've been very into over the past year. So yeah, I'd probably like that game. So good choice. All right, so the next question comes from user Vexus, um, and it is, what's a game outside of your podcast parameters, i.e. not old enough, that you think would work well for the show? And I imagine there is a lot of answers to this one. <laughs> yeah, my, my answer is extremely easy, because it's a game that I've been trying to convince James to play. It's one of my favorite games of all time, and it's one that he doesn't seem too interested, so it would be good to force him, and that is Outer Wilds. Um, Outer Wilds was my game of the year when it was released, and the idea behind the game is that you're in a uh, you're in a solar system that's stuck in a time loop, and every twenty minutes the solar system explodes. So you have to explore the solar system, which is filled with relics and writings of a, another alien race that used to be there, to try and uncover the reason for the supernova that's occurring every 20 minutes and then try to stop it if you can. And it's basically a masterclass in exploration, in environmental storytelling, and in the end it's an incredibly touching story that I really enjoyed uncovering. It's a really enjoyable and fun puzzle game to engage with um, and it's just a very innovative and unique take on that concept. So if, if I could force James to play that for the show... I would be able to share one of my favorite games with him, and I'd also be able to spend a lot of time talking about one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Steven Sausage Roll. I think, um, I think for a long time, Steven Sausage Roll would have been my answer to this question, but um, when Outer Wilds came out, that game really touched me and kind of, it, it almost felt like it was a game tailor-made for me. Like, I love the idea of exploration in games, but I think that most games fail to realize the the truth of exploration which is that you need to have meaningful things to discover and you need to have it so the player feels you know you need to make it so that the process of discovering them is somewhat challenging so that when you do you get rewarded out of the process of exploring and have a tangible reward at the end and outer wilds did both in like a close to open structure it's it's unreal that outer wilds works as a video game like it, it blows my mind it, in the way it is it should be a tangled mess that is incredibly frustrating and although it's a bit messy at times and can be a little frustrating at times for the most part it works it works wonderfully um steven sausage roll is the kind of game i'd pick to um to make you mad i'd be although although I, I still think very highly of that game it would be more of a troll pick as opposed to something that's coming from a, a better place in my heart i guess mm. well yeah so to me i guess the obvious answer for me for this question is that i want to play um like a more recent game like we're gonna do like we're planning for episode 100 to do pathologic 2 for example but specifically i kind of would want to do something like persona 5 um like a really modern jrpg just uh because i'm interested in how patrick would react to a game like that compared to something like luna um because like even people who hate 
the genre. Like people like Dunkey or Yahtzee, they don't like JRPGs, but they both love that game. And lots of people I've heard feel the same way. I'm kind of a bit worried by how anime it is. I really don't like a lot of what anime does. Yeah. Like I don't. And particularly high school drama anime yeah, is Yeah, I don't think you'd like any of that at all. Um, I guess I'm more interested gameplay-wise. And to that extent, like recently I've been playing a lot of dungeon RPGs. Um, I'd like to do one of those, like maybe something like Grimrock. Or um, I guess specifically I'd really want to play Shin Megami Tensei Strange Journey for like the, the original DS release of the game for the show. I think that'd be interesting. I know you've talked a lot about Etrian Odyssey, the dungeon crawler one. That that seems quite intriguing. I would love to force you to play that game. I think it would be very entertaining to talk about. Um, I don't know. That game kind of strikes me as being similar to like Resident Evil, how it's really like tightly balanced and like everything's there for a reason. That's how it strikes me as a game. So... Uh, it's got a lot of systems to talk about. I'd pr- I doubt you'd like it, but it'd be an interesting episode. So generally, like my answer is like modern games are long games, like any long game really that we can't usually do. Um, although secondary answer would be like puzzle games because they're just I don't think there are good puzzle games before like mid two thousands, which is our cutoff date. So I'd love to do something like you know The Witness or like uh, Portal Two. Talos Principle. Talos Principle would be great. Would be great. Yeah, um, stuff like that I would really enjoy. Yeah, Steven Sausage Roll. Din is one I'd like to do for the show. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've played that. Uh, at all. I know of it. Yeah, I could see yeah. us doing that. But Barbara is you. Yeah, or stuff that's like even slightly too late. Like I'd like to do nine nine nine. I'd like to do like um Sudoku. Sudoku. <laughs> <laughs> Sudoku. We just both buy the same Sudoku book and we just work on it and do it. Oh god, that's brain awful. training for DS. Actually, that's two thousand and five, so it's within the cutoff date. What? I could choose it. Is that the same as Professor Layton games? Yeah, we could do something like that. I've played a Layton game. I liked it. I think you'd. I don't know if you'd like it, but if there's one that's in the cutoff date, I could choose it. Basically, there's literally. It's really annoying because there's lots of new games we'd like to do for the show. Uh, lots and lots and lots of new games. But um, it's a retro gaming show, baby. So Doom Eternal. Uh, we want to keep somewhat <laughs> That'd focused. That'd be a great episode. <laughs> I don't want to do Doom Eternal for the no? show. No. Okay. Because I'd love it. Because I loved that game and you hate it, so... I, I wouldn't say I hate it. And also, I will say that I've gone on record as saying that I actually have a lot of respect for what they did. Because the thing about Doom Eternal is that they had a vision. You know, that they, they had a vision and they didn't compromise on that vision. Yeah. Like, they very clearly wanted to amp up the resource management and counter nature of that game. And they committed hard in that direction. And they made it an extremely well polished and sophisticated game i just didn't find that more i i found that the focus moved away from your ability to kill demons and it was more almost um rpg like in how you needed to use the right tool for the job with uh, very little reaction time but even though i didn't like it i still think it kind of it kind of bucked the trend with triple a games um in that they had a vision and they went hard on it and, you know, good for them and good for that's, the people um, who enjoy that, ki- that kind that's of game. That's the opposite of your opinion of Street Fighter, where you want it to be about choosing the right tool for the job and less about reaction time. Uh, I, I guess my problem is that I 
I kind of come from a simpler game. It's that you're it's that you're good at shooters and not good at fighters, right? That's the distinction here. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it comes from a simpler time. I come from a simpler time with FPS games where I felt like the, the thing I enjoy about FPS games is like positioning and aiming, mm. and I think that aiming in particular in Doom Eternal is less important than it's ever been. Yeah, see, that's a big plus for me because I am very uncoordinated with a mouse in that respect. Yeah. yeah. And as for a jab out fighting games, that may be out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so Mayday Mima asks, what episode would you do for April Fool's? We actually almost did one the first year. We, we talked about this. <laughs> yeah, yes. so in one of the really old releases of like Microsoft Excel if you like do a bunch of weird shit it opens this little game inside Excel <laughs> and we it's a flight simulator yeah it's like a flight simulator inside Excel if you it's the 1997 version yeah we were going to try and do that as a joke <laughs> like has this stood the test of time i i also i also think that the other funny idea for an april fools episode would be to do an episode on the same game again like just to have a different just opinion. do Luna Silver Star story for a second time, <laughs> just just for no reason. It, there's um there's this podcast where they watch the same movie just in a tro- I think it was Jack and Jill two, like every week for a year. Yeah, and it just gets worse, and they just devolve into madness, right? Yeah, as they should. Yeah, <laughs> as they deserve to. Awful. Yeah. So so those were our basic ideas, but uh. Uh, I'm still open to doing it. It just depends how you know creative we want to get. I I guess we'll we'll see. We'll see what uh what day uh, April Fools drops on. I'm lazy. <laughs> that's the main that's the main deciding factor. Yeah, who who knows? We might we might do a five or ten minute bonus April Fools episode or something if we're both feeling in the mood. Mm. All right. And uh, the very final question, also from Mady Mima, is what is your favorite Xbox Live Arcade era indie game? So. XBLA was from about 2008 to 2011, maybe 12 or 13, but it launched in 2008. Um, I, ha- I have an easy answer for this question. Um, once again, PC Gamer didn't have an Xbox, but there was one game that was also on PC that I adore to pieces, and that is Braid. I think Braid is an absolutely magnificent puzzle game. Uh, Jonathan Blow is a wanker, but he has fantastic... Uh, fantastic gameplay design in literally every game he's made um the story is nonsense but the puzzles are brilliant and particularly the meta puzzles that he's hidden are even more brilliant and uh braid was very early to have such good puzzle game mechanics and i think it's no surprise that the witness is as good as it is so so i pick braid um i have no answer for this question unfortunately because i didn't play indie games until I reckon mid 2010s to be honest so um I never actually experienced anything like that from that era um oh you you've never played braid nope never played braid highly h- highly recommend it it's it's really good it's really good to this day the story is nonsense but the <laughs> but the game like the puzzles are just really well thought out they're puzzles where every time you solve one you feel smart um you know there's basically it's it's a game where you can it's like a 2d platformer where you can rewind time at will it's the kind you have a hundred percent it's just one of it's one of those games where you have multiple copies of yourself and you kind of like record your actions right 
so so each each world there's i think six worlds or five worlds and each world has a different gimmick and one of the gimmicks is you can send a recording of yourself out mm, yeah. um another gimmick is you get a ring that slows time in an aoe around the ring uh and the idea is that there are different objects that are immune to your time rewind powers etc etc but it's a very it really doesn't waste your time it's more got every single puzzle is substantial so you have to you know there'll be like 30 puzzles throughout the entire game but they're 30 really good engaging puzzles Mm, i probably like it like i do like that kind of thing i remember when i played talos principle it had that mechanic of the recording thing as well and i enjoyed it there too um it's very it's very tricky to get your head around sometimes but it's fun yeah talos principle is a fairly good analogy but i think as a 2d platformer its mechanics are easier to grok yeah like one of the tricky things about Talos Principle is that the 3D space I think ends up being, you know, more difficult to wrap your head around than the 2D space. Yeah. So Talos Principle, uh, Braid feels more like you've got you have more eureka moments in Braid than in Talos Principle, I think. Yeah, well, Talos Principle had a lot of meta puzzles like that took place outside of the puzzles that uh, yeah I really enjoyed delving into. Really? Well, well, Braid has some of those, and I would be astonished if you got more than there's eight of them. I'd be astonished if you even got two of them. Like they're they're deliberately insanely difficult to to find. I, I listen. I, in fact, I'm going to spoil one for you right now that you never would have figured out in a million years. So, um, in addition to uh, slowing down time, you can also speed up time up to eight times. One of his levels, there is a cloud, and the cloud at eight times speed takes two hours to move across the screen. And the way you get one of the puzzle pieces is you put your time on eight times as this cloud slowly moves. It's moving so slowly you you, you wouldn't notice if you were playing the game. But, yeah, that sounds uh, about yeah. right. Celeste had a bunch of those too, and it was like, I'm just looking these up. Yeah, the hearts. Yeah, yeah. Sim- similar kind of thing. Yeah, just just insane. But the the actual puzzles in Braid are very good. I'll... Uh, Maybe that can be your Christmas gift, James. Yeah. Well, once I will see how cheap it is. <laughs> Got so much to get through, but yeah, that's um that about wraps us up for the mailbag episode. Thank you everyone for sending in questions. Um, this is normally where we'd be announcing the next episode. Um, in the last couple of years, we've often done two bonus episodes at the end of the year. Um, and this time we thought we'd try something different again. Last year we did Lost Threads and Tangents, where we just, uh, you know, went through over, went over our thoughts and, you know, tied up any loose ends discussion-wise that we thought we left hanging over the year. But uh, we couldn't really get enough uh, together this year to make an episode like that, so we thought we'd try something different, hey Pat? Yeah, so this is actually something we've been wanting to do for a while, but uh, it never really fit in our schedule. We thought that James and I would play through a modern game. And we would do an in-depth discussion and review of it instead of doing a retro game. And after talking about it, James and I realized that it's a good idea to start with a game we're both very familiar with, one that we've played a lot. So we're going to be doing an episode on Celeste. Um, Celeste is a game that James and I have played to bits that we've already discussed a lot just over time naturally. And it's a game that we both have a lot of admiration for. So 
I'm I'm really excited to play through it again with a more analytical hat on and discuss exactly what it is about Celeste that makes it tick. And I think that over the course of the episode, we'll have an opportunity to compare it to retro games like Super Mario World. So it'll be fun to kind of compare it in the opposite direction. Yeah, and it might give you a you know an opportunity to actually finish the uh, the extra content, right, Pat? Yeah. So so in Celeste, there's a bunch of bonus content outside the main quest line that you've got the main game you've got uh, lots of strawberries to collect you've got b sides you've got c sides and then you've got level eight which is a challenge far beyond anything else so uh for me i only ever finished the b sides and about half the c sides so i've got some extra grinding to do but i think that for the purpose of the show i'll start again from scratch and i should should be able to catch up to where i was pretty quickly yeah, I might go through a quick. I reckon I'll get through the game, you know, like many Two times hours. faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took me the first time. Maybe not that quickly, but uh, we'll see. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. It's a game I really enjoy, um, and I played quite a lot of it the first time through. I think the story took me uh, maybe eight hours the first time, and my save file has like sixty hours or something at <laughs> this point. And many uh, thousands are, of deaths, at least for me. Yeah, many many thousands of deaths. But uh, you know, time to double that number, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's a bit experimental, a bit new, but I'm um, I'm eager to give it a try, and we'd love to hear your feedback on it when we're done, because obviously. This is heading in a different direction than we normally do, but we figure you like listening to us talk about games, so we'd we'd try a newer one for once. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next fortnight. Yeah, see you in two weeks for Celeste.